You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. That was good. Welcome to Kingsway. If you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here with us today. Checking things out. And uh, I don't know about you, but we used to go on family vacations a lot when I was a kid, different places all over the country. And when we went anywhere really on the east side of the United States, we drove, whether it was Florida or Myrtle Beach. And I remember it was long, long. This is before iPads or phones existed, right? And so you had to figure out how to entertain yourselves. Now, I am notorious here on staff and meetings for having a very small bladder. That makes me a really bad traveling partner still to this day. And I remember this one trip, I believe we were going to Florida because I had to keep asking to stop and my dad was not happy. And so no matter what, every time we stopped, he made me not get anything to drink. But nevertheless, 20 minutes after the previous stop, I had to stop again. Now my sister, kind of running parallel to the same story, for multiple stops in the row, she kept talking about, for some reason, this desire to have a donut. She finally just says, I want a jelly donut so bad. My dad takes me into the gas station, I use the bathroom, and he sees they have donuts. He buys a jelly donut, brings it back to the car, and my sister is elated. Now, the other side of the story is, I don't really like donuts. I don't really care. There's really only one kind of donut in the world I like, and even then, if I didn't have it, I'd be fine. If I never had a donut, again, I know, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I don't care. But my parents, being good parents, said, you're gonna have to share the donut with your brother. That's fine. They cut the donut in half. They even gave her first choice. Now, my sister, in her greed, looked at both halves of the donut and saw all of this red on this half of the donut, chose the donut, bit into it, and found out it was a facade. When my mom had cut the donut, almost all of the jelly, almost all of it was on my side of the donut. And when she cut it, it left like a red smear on the other side of the donut. And I am on the other half of the back seat spitting out jelly that I think is disgusting in a napkin. And she is on the other side of the car throwing an absolute fit. Now we have joked about this for years. She brings it up all the time. I am 46. My sister, well, I won't say that. She's 29. She, um, she's my older sister. And uh, you do the math. Anyway, so she t- literally brings it up, tells her kids, tells my kids, Christmas time, brings it up all the time, all the time. So after a couple of weeks ago, I was convicted because we did a sermon on repentance and restitution. So this week, my wife and I ordered a dozen jelly donuts and had them sent to her house. So I was making right a wrong. And what's funny is Walmart messed up the order and didn't deliver jelly donuts, delivered some other kind of donut, and we didn't tell her it was coming. So when this poor delivery driver from Walmart shows up, she sent me the ring video. It's hilarious. He's trying to explain to her why they aren't jelly donuts and someone messed up, but he hopes that it's okay and she can call Walmart and fix it. And she's literally looking at him going, I don't know what you're talking about. So she takes the donuts in and she's texting everybody, did somebody order us donuts? And we are cracking up. She sends me a picture of her youngest daughter, which I was gonna put up there, but I didn't get her permission. She's, she's like four and a half, five years old, right? And she's got this donut in her mouth and she's so elated that she has a donut. And she says to my sister, I don't think we should forgive Uncle Matt if he's gonna keep buying us donuts. <laughs> well, 
Today, we're going to talk about forgiveness, right? And I thought it'd be fun to start with a story that it's like, okay, it's easy and it's funny and it's silly and no one cares. But we want to get into some really, really hard things today. So laughter is good for the soul, senses of well to wrestle with the hard things. Let's start with this question before we dig into the story of Joseph. Is there a way to get justice without getting revenge? When I was in Colorado, I was a youth pastor, and one day I got a phone call, and uh, apparently a couple of my students got together with a couple of their friends, and they decided on a Saturday afternoon it would be funny to drive down the road and shoot people on bikes with paintball guns. Yeah, some of you can imagine. I'm not a scientist. I don't understand the physics behind it, but I guess it speeds up the ball, it makes it even more powerful. Not to count, if you're in Colorado, most people going biking in Colorado on a nice day, they're not bundled up. They're wearing um, thinner clothing. And that was part of it. And so a number of these people, when they were hit, they went down off an embankment. They wrecked their bikes. Some of them brought photos of their back just covered in a massive bruise. Now, what happened as a byproduct of that is the, the people had a couple choices. They could either um, have them arrested for this or they chose to go the route of something called restorative justice. And what that looked like was these kids and their parents, and then some of them brought reps, like one of the students asked me to come as a representative, and we sat in a room, and in that room, you had to listen to the people who chose not to press charges, and they came and got to tell their story, what it felt like, what they went through, the shame, the embarrassment, the doctor's visits, all of the pieces, and the hope was that through hearing the story of the, what happened, that these kids would be broken, would repent, and then they could come up with a process. What would it look like for me, if I were the one who was shot, to say, I am at peace with what you have said and what you have done to make this right? You can't undo it, but instead of throwing you into juvie or taking you to court and suing you, can you give me something that's going to tell me we can work through this and we can fix this together? And as this process unfolded, I sat there thinking, wow, this is like the heart of the gospel. Because really everything I need to say, I can summarize in this one phrase. The gospel is based in forgiveness, but forgiveness never means ignoring justice. What it does mean is that I don't take matters into my own hands and seek revenge. This is such a huge thing that even early in the Bible, we see this unfold. When Cain kills Abel, God holds Cain accountable, but then God puts a mark on Cain and it says, and anybody who tries to kill Cain and do to Cain what Cain did to Abel, I will take personal responsibility for repaying them. So this is a really big deal to God. And what broke my heart in all of it is the student that I was asked to be there to pastor and mentor pulled me aside in the hallway and he said, man, I don't know what to do. It's just me and him. I said, what do you mean? His parents, they're good people. They're godly people. But he said, my parents told me not to acknowledge that I did anything wrong. I said, why? He said, because they're afraid that these people don't really mean it and they're gonna go out of here and sue us and we'll lose everything. I said, the whole reason we're here is because they asked for this, not because they're trying to trick you or deceive you or get something out of you. I said, I said listen, and I won't say names. I said, you, you've got to do what's right before God. 
You cannot go into this and not accept responsibility. You must go into this and own what is yours to own. You didn't do everything. You weren't responsible for everything, but you did what you did. You gotta own that. And he didn't. And I'll just say that there came a point about four years later where the dad of this particular student stood before a judge and said, you've got to stop letting my son off the hook. If you don't throw him into juvie, he's gonna end up in prison one day. And I keep thinking this was the first of multiple circumstances where this young man learned, I don't have to take responsibility for what is mine. And it brings up a great question. Is there a way to get justice without getting revenge? And it's not everything that we need to talk about today, but it's a great starter. So we're gonna open, if you have a Bible, feel free to open it to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible. We're gonna take a look at a man and I'm gonna, I have to summarize a lot. I do not have time to go into the details of a story. You might wanna go back and listen to the last few weeks to get some of those details. But in the story, there's this guy named Joseph. He's the youngest of a bunch of brothers. And for reasons I don't have time to go into, his brothers hate him. There's a lot of reasons, but he is the favorite son. In fact, his dad buys him a multicolored coat. This is where you've ever heard of Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat. It's at least the background, the concept of where this came from. But daddy favors him in many, many, many ways, and the brothers hate him. And one day, some of the brothers get this idea, let's kill Joseph. And another one of the brothers goes, ah, guys, that's a terrible idea. We should not do this. Dad will not be happy. This is not the right thing to do. And that becomes a little bit relevant. That guy's name is Reuben. Becomes a little bit relevant later in the story. Instead, they decide to beat Joseph up, throw him in a cistern, and sell him to some wandering traders who are coming through. When they sell him to the traders, the traders take him into Egypt and sell him as a slave to a guy named Potiphar. And he lives as a slave for a long time. We don't know exactly how long, but he ends up working hard and God raises him to the, the, to the lead over the household of Potiphar's house. Eventually, some trouble happens there, which I talked about last week, and then he ends up being thrown in prison. Now, he's not done anything wrong in all of these situations. But finally, when he's in prison for a long period of time, God brings him out of prison because he can interpret Pharaoh's dream. And when he does that, Pharaoh puts him in charge of managing the future of Egypt. And he ends up becoming the second most powerful person, the only person more powerful in all of Egypt is Pharaoh himself. And he ends up saving all of Egypt, his own family, and everybody else. Now that's the setup because what happens is as this famine hits the land, that's what God has predicted to Pharaoh through his dreams and Joseph interprets them. What happens is Joseph's own family is running out of food and resources as the famine gets worse and worse and worse over years. And they have to now come to Egypt to ask for help. They're gonna have to sell some of their stuff and buy food to feed their family and feed the animals and all the things. Except in the middle of that, they have no idea. They think Joseph is a slave somewhere else. If he's even alive anymore, they have no clue. But they are about to come face to face with Joseph and he's going to recognize them and they're not going to have any idea it's him. So let's take a look at the drama of the story for a minute. We're gonna pick up Genesis 42, verse six. It says, now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, 
he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Stop here for a second. Go back. Go back for a second. There you go. Yeah. So what we're going to see is Joseph is going to have a lot of emotion. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being beat up and sold and then your daddy lied to? Could you imagine it's been decades? I don't know what that word is. Decades. I don't know. It just went Southern all of a sudden. <laughs> decades. And you've carried this bitterness, this anger with you. And it's just festered inside you, right? And this is what's going on. And Joseph sees them and he yells at them. There's a whole bunch of other tests and things that go on in the middle of this. But I want you to see that this part here, they bowed down with their faces to the ground. When he was a young man, we don't know exactly how old, maybe 12 years old or so, I don't know, 15. He has some dreams that his brothers and eventually his entire family will come and bow down to him. And that's important because it dawns on him, like, oh, this dream I had when I was a young man, it came true. Verse seven, where do you come from? He asked them. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Is that really what's happening here? No. Does he know that's not what's happening here? So then why is it telling us this? Well, I keep telling you throughout the book of Genesis, there are a lot of stories and a lot of details we aren't told. So when we do get a detail and we do get a story, it's because the author wants us to know something. They want us to think about it in a very specific way. This is a test moment. And Joseph has the choice to exact revenge or show mercy. Quick question, gut check for yourself. What would you do? Now, before you're too quick to answer, because we always want to think of ourselves in the best version of ourselves, I want you to pick somebody in your life who wronged you deeply. They cheated, they lied, they stole, they abused, they hurt you. And you're still carrying around a wound this day from that moment and that person. And now you have the chance. You've got all the power in the room. You could arrest them. You could punish them. You could kill them. Nobody would say a word. What would you do? They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but he would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us, Reuben replied. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. What is happening here is the brothers are in front of Joseph and Joseph is being angry toward them and the brothers start to talk to each other because they don't know that he's Joseph and he speaks Hebrew. They think he's an Egyptian and they don't know that he understands. So they start talking to each other. And Reuben, the brother who tried to talk him out of it, 
and they didn't listen to him and they beat him up. They didn't kill him, but they beat him up, even though he pleaded. Now you get some insight here that we didn't get earlier that Joseph, back when he was a boy, when how old he was, he was begging, please, please spare my life. Please, guys, don't do this. What did I do to you? Why are you doing this to me? And Reuben is going, see, now we're desperate. This is God. He's getting us. And this is really important to the story because I think most of us, even though we call ourselves Christian, we believe in some form of karma. Karma is that Hindu belief that like, whatever I do in the world, it'll come back to me. So if I do good in the world, good will come back to me. And if I do evil in the world, then evil will come back to me. But karma is not biblical. What is biblical is, is natural consequences. We actually looked at a passage last week that said this, that in this world, people are going to cheat and lie and deceive each other because sin has impacted our lives. And if we're part of that and we get caught up in that, we're gonna find that there's a way that God has rigged the world where people are gonna have a hard time trusting each other. But we who are believers are not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be different than that, above that. And so it's not so much karma, like it's this universal principle that has to work, but there is this thing, the way that God has rigged it, that if I am trustworthy, people will trust me. And if I'm not... But it's not God orchestrating events, but you can see that they're trying to figure it out. And Joseph is listening to this whole thing. And this brings up a great question for us. And to what Joseph is listening to, does this confession equal repentance? Or is this just eavesdropping? Because when it comes to forgiveness, if somebody is actually owning something, we've got a little bit of a different scenario than if people aren't owning anything. You ever been deeply hurt or wrong by somebody and no matter how many times you've tried to talk to them, they look at you like you have two heads and they're like, I, I'm sorry that you were offended by that. By the way, world's worst apology. If you use those phrase, if you use that phrase, just take it out of your vocabulary now, it is not an apology. There's no ownership, there's no acceptance. There are right times to look at somebody and say, oh my goodness, I did not mean to offend you by what I said. I am so sorry. What I meant was this. So let me try a different phrase. Let me try a different way. I didn't mean that the way you're receiving it. And I'm so sorry that it came out that way. That, that is acceptable. But to look at somebody else and say, well, I'm sorry that you were hurt is not an apology. But what is an apology? Is this an apology? And what do I do if it is and what do I do if it isn't? There's a passage I like to use that Paul talks about later in the New Testament to help guide me when I'm trying to discern whether a person really is apologetic. Like, did I get a dozen jelly donuts or not? Because technically my sister still hasn't got a dozen jelly donuts. So like, I don't know if she knows if I'm sorry or not. But here's this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death. This is a tough one. I wanna caution you real quick, okay? And the caution is this. I wanna caution you to be careful you don't become the judge of someone's eternity or soul. And we are now walking on a very dangerous and fine line that is better worked out in community with other believers who are praying through, seeking wisdom, and trying to help us discern this. That's the purpose of Matthew chapter 18 that tells us how to confront somebody when they've offended us or sinned against us. 
And we go to them, and if they repent, we forgive them, we're healed, praise God. But if they don't acknowledge it, they don't accept it, then we go back to the church and we take somebody from the church with us. So now there's a witness, a testify that, hey, and maybe they can listen and go, you know what? You're being harsh. You're not 100% right here. I'm listening to the whole story and I'm discerning. And if that person still won't repent and still won't confess, then I go and I take the person and the issue to the eldership, to the leadership of the church. And the leadership of the church is supposed to make a decision about is this person stuck in sin and do they need to own it or am I wrong in some form or fashion? And with each layer, the goal is restoration. The goal is reconciliation as we work toward true repentance. And what Paul is trying to say here is that if I have true repentance, I am gonna have this brokenness, this sorrow between me and God. I have wronged the heart of God. I have offended the heart of God with my actions, with what I have done. And so to me, then I will do whatever it takes to make it right. Whatever it takes to make it right. When I don't have that, then I have worldly sorrow. And the problem with worldly sorrow is I really just don't want it to be uncomfortable. And see, it's dangerous for us to discern that by ourselves. That's why Matthew 18. But it's also dangerous not to discern it at all. Because see, if I don't have godly sorrow, then as soon as the pain goes away, I'll stop changing. I love the way uh, Tim Keller says this in his new book called Forgive. He says, the idea that sin is grievous to God also has profound practical implications for people who want to change their lives and habits. If you say, I must stop doing this thing because it will get me into trouble, then you are not really sorry for the sin itself, but for the consequences or the results of the sin. You're not sorry primarily because it grieved God, but because it grieved you or others. This means that as soon as your sinful habit stops causing trouble for you, you will stop causing trouble for it. But if you recognize, if you'll poignantly what your sin is doing to God, you will have a deeper and more permanent motivation to turn away from the sin itself. See, these two things go hand in hand. This is what the book looks like. Literally, it just came out a week or two ago. If you're interested, forgive. Why should I and how can I? I highly recommend it, but I will warn you up front, uh, it, it, Tim is a little bit of a deep writer. He's a little bit of a scholar. And so there will be moments you will be trudging through, some of you. Some of you will eat every minute out of it up. But if you're looking for a book that helps give some practical tips as well as some biblical wisdom, I think this book does a really good job. Now, that being said, when I've discerned whether or not a person is showing godly sorrow or worldly sorrow, whether I've discerned whether they mean it or not, there comes a moment in my heart where I still have to come back to that initial question. Can I now show mercy even if I'm not sure if it's godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? Like, are they upset that they got caught or are they upset that they offended the heart of God? If they're upset that they got caught, this isn't gonna last. So how can I know? And what do I do? And what if the answer is yes? What if whatever they did, they are now broken before God, that they hurt and offended the heart of God? Can I still show them mercy when I really want to get even? Back to Joseph for a minute. As they're sitting here talking, it says, uh, he, they didn't realize that he could understand them. And so he hears their discussion. And it says, he turned away from them and began to weep. 
but then came back and spoke to them again. And he had Simeon taken from them, that's one of the brothers, and bound before their eyes. So what we start to see here is, is this wrestling moment that you will feel if this moment ever comes where you have the opportunity to forgive somebody. And the reason is, is because what's happening is he's listening to them own what they did to him and it gets him. And I'm gonna guess it gets him in ways he doesn't expect yet. Yeah, he recognized them and his first motivation, his first act is, I'm gonna get you. But he sees them and he sees their hunger and he sees their need. And there's something inside him that begins to stir. So he turns away from them and he catches himself. You ever had that moment, right? You're like watching the end of Rudy and uh, you're like, mm. I don't, I'm fine, allergies. He turns away and he's grabbing his emotion, trying to get it together and hold it together. But then he decides and he, and he puts together, you should read it for yourself. I don't have time to go into it. This elaborate plan to kind of test them. And, and honestly, it's hard to tell whether he's getting even or whether he's going to extract revenge or whether this is a, 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 some sort of ploy or, or way to find out and discern, are they really sorry? It's, it's hard to tell. It's a moving thing. And that's the thing I should say to all of us. In our hearts, I don't know if you know this in yourself, but uh, I'm a mixed bag of motives. I don't wanna be. I wanna be altruistic. I wanna always do the right thing, but I'm human and I have a fleshly side to myself. Fast forward a chapter, which represents a long period of time, even though it's only a chapter for us. And what happens next is uh, they come back, the brothers do, a second time. And Joseph basically told them, don't come back without your brother. He has another brother. His name is Benjamin. Now, without going into this, because I've talked about it the last few weeks, there are, there's a one dad and four women, two wives, two concubine in this relationship. And I don't have time to unpack that today. But Joseph's mom, Rachel, she died giving birth to Benjamin. And that happened after Joseph was sold as a slave. So he's learning that his mom is dead and he's learning that he has a brother. And all of this is kind of coming about in one moment. So where he's telling these brothers, don't even come back unless you come back with him. But I want you to see what happens when they come back and Benjamin is now with them. It says, deeply moved as the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and he wept there. Now, this is important because what you're seeing is in real time, Joseph is dealing with the grief of this whole thing. Here are my brothers who did evil to me, but here is also my brother who I didn't even know existed. And he represents the death of my mom and all these things that have happened. And you think about this in your story. When somebody hurts you or wrongs you, they steal things from you that weren't theirs to take. And it might be your safety in a moment. It might be the way you feel when you're in certain contexts or relationships. It might be the way perhaps you and your spouse now interact together because of that thing they did to you back when you were younger. It might be the way you feel unsafe in business relationships because of the way that other person cheated or stole or lied. It might be in an interaction with, with another uh, employee or perhaps your employees if you own the business. And because of the way they treated you, it makes you go, I don't know if I can ever trust again. And what you have is Joseph, and I love this, in real time, he's trying to work through this. 
He never got to grieve his mama dying. He never got to know his little brother. He never got to have these family experiences. It was stolen from him by their evil acts. But it says he's deeply moved. There's something inside of him that begins to stir and call him and draw him into a moment to act a different way than the way he could it says, again, a couple chapters later, many, many, many parts of the story later, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. What is going on here? Joseph is finding himself caught between the world that now exists and the world that used to exist. And he's trying to figure out how to bridge the gap between these two worlds. So he kicks all of these Egyptians out and he just lets his emotion go. But remember, Joseph, or Joseph's brothers, Benjamin and the rest of the brothers, they have no idea who he is. They're just like, this dude has lost it. He's crazy. When you have this type of moment, you will feel crazy. But as God is stirring in your heart and he's beginning to turn your tension, he's changing the way you feel and perceive and look at things. As that's happening, you're gonna find that you are more connected to the heart of God when you lean towards mercy and forgiveness. In fact, Joseph reveals God's heart for complete forgiveness. And I used the word complete on purpose. Jesus is going around and he's talking about forgiveness. And you gotta remember, Jesus would do these public sermons and then he had the disciples and they would be following him, listening. And then a lot of times Jesus would pull them aside afterwards and he'd say, all right, tell me what you heard or tell me what you thought. Or sometimes they'd pull Jesus aside and say, hey, we heard everything you said, Jesus, but it didn't make any sense to us. Can you help us? And so in this particular moment, Jesus is teaching on forgiveness and Peter pulls Jesus aside and now he's got Jesus' attention. He says, well, I hear you, Jesus, and you want us to forgive. So like how many times should we forgive? Like seven times? And there's a lot going into the number seven, as I've been saying throughout the series. The number seven stands for like, like, like wholeness or completeness, but most likely in this context, Peter's using it because he feels like if I say seven times, I'm being generous. Like how many times do I have to forgive somebody before even God would say, all right, you've done everything that you can do. Seven? And Jesus looks back at Peter and he says, not seven times, Peter. And then we don't know what he says next. He either says 77 times or he says 70 times seven times. Pick one. And what's interesting is both of them are fascinating numbers biblically. You know how I often say, if I had another hour. But let me just give you the short version. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, makes this prophecy. It has to do with these weeks. And if you add up the total number of the weeks that really represent years, do you know how many it represents? 490. 70 times seven. It's not an accident if that's the number that's represented there. Because at the end of these weeks, Messiah will come 
Everybody will be restored to the Father and sin will be removed. In that way, what Jesus is saying to Peter is abundant regardless of what exactly number Jesus said in that moment. It's obvious he's saying, Peter, I want you to get a checklist out of your head. I don't want you pulling out your phone and thinking, okay, we're at one, strike two, strike three, I am so holy, strike four, strike five, I'm starting to get irritated, but I'm almost done with you, strike six, seven. I want you to have in mind, Peter, that I want you to forgive completely, wholly, from your heart. Release them. Because that's the heart of God the Father toward us. See, we see this when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's trying to bridge two worlds also. He's got one hand towards the Father and one hand towards us. And while he's hanging there with arms stretched wide, it says in Luke chapter 23, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Jesus is literally looking at the criminals beside him and the men crucifying him, the men who've beat him and spit on him, the men who've stripped him naked, put the crown of thorns on his head, the men who pierced his hands and his feet and hung him on the cross. And he's looking at God and he's saying, God, they don't know. Forgive them. God desires for us to have forgiving hearts. Here's the problem. Today, we have in our minds that the reason we forgive other people is because it sets us free. And the motives are all wrong. And I know some of you have been told that. You've been told that in counseling sessions and books because it's a really good platitude today. It's just not biblical. Being set free is a byproduct of why I forgive somebody else. It's not the end game. It's not the goal. What is the goal? Let's come back to Joseph's story for just a minute. I think it's easier to get there that way. So Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. (laughs) Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. You just gotta get this picture. They don't know. Like all of a sudden this dude is talking in Hebrew. Right? Remember, he hasn't been talking to them. He's talking to them in their language. And he's like, hey, it's Joseph. How's dad? And they're like, what is happening? Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me, come close. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And you gotta be thinking, they're like, what? And now he says, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Wow. Joseph is seeing God's activity in his pain. What he says at the end of Genesis is what what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So God didn't intend evil for me, but God understood your intentions and he chose to use your evil for my good. And that is exactly what God will do for us. 
He did not determine that people would do evil things to you, but he determined he wouldn't let those evil things ruin you. He would not let those evil things destroy you. Instead, he would come in and carry you and protect you and love you and put pieces back together that others have stolen and taken away from you. In fact, he goes on now. Joseph says, for two years now, there's been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. And then he goes on in verse seven, he says, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. In other words, what Joseph is seeing is even though you intended evil, God intended good. And now because God has been good to me, I can be good to you. And that is the heart of the gospel when it comes to forgiveness. Even though you've done evil, God has done good to me. And out of the good that God has done to me, I can do good back to you. Instead of revenge, instead of getting evil, evil, even, I can do to you what God has done to me. Years ago, uh, there was somebody who hurt me deeply. And uh, I won't share any of those details or their name or anything. I was bitter and I was mad. I was hurt. And I was sitting with a friend and I was telling the story. And at the end of this long, I mean, it probably took me an hour or two this friend looked at me and said, Man, thank you for sharing all that with me. Thank you for telling me all of that. I get it. Like that, that has dramatically impacted your life. It has changed the trajectory of your life. Are you ready to forgive? I'm not joking. I laughed out loud. I LOL'd. I literally went, ha, no. To which he said, a wiser, older man, he said, I get it. You're hurt and you're angry. It'll probably be a process for you. It probably won't just happen overnight. But you need to know it does begin with a decision, Matt. And he said, look, I, I don't mean to increase your pain, but I do have to tell you something Jesus said. I said, what's that? He said, do you remember? Jesus said, to the degree to which you forgive others, God will forgive you. And immediately I wasn't mad at the other person. I was mad at God. How dare you? How dare you tell me that God's not gonna forgive me if I'm not willing to forgive? How dare you? Do you know what they did? To which I heard Jesus whisper, do you know what you did? See, the heart of the gospel is I don't forgive so I can be set free. That's selfish. I forgive because God, who is infinitely perfect and has done nothing evil or wrong to me ever, ever, or anyone ever, he allowed himself to be crucified, brutalized on a cross to give away forgiveness freely to anybody who wants it. That's the heart of the gospel. And Jesus says, after I have forgiven you of so much, how can you then hold on to your bitterness and unforgiveness like it's a badge of honor? I have released you of everything, everything. So when we see God's activity at work in our lives, it changes us. Let me close with this last story. In the book of Mark, Jesus is doing his ministry and he's healing 
And it gets so busy that the place becomes filled, filled with people. There's no room for anybody, standing room only and even outside the door. And there's these four friends. They have a fifth friend who's paralyzed. And they load their friend up on a mat. And you can imagine each of them carrying a corner of the mat. And they know they just have to get to Jesus so that Jesus can heal their friend. And they get there because it's so busy in the standing room only, they can't get to Jesus. So they go up on the roof and they dig in through the thatched roof and they create some sort of contraption and they are lowering their paralyzed friend down on a mat into the room where Jesus is eating and hanging out. It's the most awkward moment you can imagine. And it says in Mark, Jesus seeing the faith of the friends looks at the man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are angry. This is blasphemy. How dare you say your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. Exactly. But then Jesus looks at them and says, I know what's in your heart. So that you don't wonder whether or not I have the ability to forgive sins. Son, why don't you go ahead and grab your mat, get up and walk. And the paralyzed man gets up and he starts to walk. Like that. And what it shows us, a few things very powerfully here. See, if we want even our enemies to be transformed, it's going to take someone carrying them to Jesus. But they're never going to get to Jesus if our hardened, bittered, unforgiving hearts can't release them of what's happened. We need Jesus to do a work that is far beyond anything we can understand or wrap our heads around. But it's the work that begins in us and then flows out of us like a fountain into them. But it brings up a great question. I'm wondering if the paralyzed man, when he heard that Jesus forgave him, thought, yeah, that's great, but I really need something bigger than that. I really would like to walk again, Jesus. I don't really need forgiveness. And see, this is what happens when we run into these moments where we gotta forgive somebody and that's what's going through their mind. And Tim Keller in his book does a phenomenal job pointing this out, trying to help wrap our heads around what's really going on here. Because he says, I'm guessing the man is like, no, 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 I don't need that. I don't need that. I need something else. And Tim's like, no, you don't. You think you need something else, but that's not really what you need. What you really need is something bigger than that. I'm gonna have you jump to the last quote in my notes. Because what you really need is forgiveness, not healing. Because forgiveness leads to your healing. In fact, he says, forgiveness gets to the bottom of things, to the alienation we feel from God and from ourselves because of our wrongdoing. Jesus was saying, I want to show you that the deepest need of your nature is for me. Only I can bestow perfect love, new identity, endless comfort, hope, and glory. And the doorway into all of that is to know forgiveness. It's time to open that door and walk through it. And here's what I know. Some of you came in here today and we've been praying that God would stir something you. You didn't anticipate that he was gonna stir, but he's stirring it and it's stirring in you right here, right now. And my fear is you'll walk out of here and you'll turn on the football games and you'll do all the things decorating for Christmas or getting ready for Thanksgiving and you'll miss the opportunity to really do the work that God needs you to do right now, which is to begin by receiving God's forgiveness and then giving it away to other people. To let the gospel transform your heart. Let me be the spiritual father to you that someone else was to me and just say, I get it, this might be a process. 
You might have questions and you gotta work through things and you gotta seek wisdom and unpack it all. But if you don't begin with an initial decision, God, you have freely forgiven me. Help me to freely forgive. If you don't start there, then God won't be able to do the work in you. It begins with an initial decision that God, no matter how hurt or bitter or wronged I was, I'm going to begin at the cross, at the altar, at forgiveness. What I wanna do right now is I just wanna pray over you that God would break something in your heart and allow you to begin to release like you did to Joseph. Maybe you'll find yourself weeping in this moment. Like, I don't know what it is. Ready to release something to him. And then I'm gonna tell you how to respond. Let's pray. Father, we need you right here and right now. God, we love you. Nobody came in here today expecting this. But this is where the gospel meets us, meets us in our greatest need. So God, my prayer right now is that you would stir in this place in our hearts. If there's any area in our lives where we are holding on to bitterness, we are holding on to unforgiveness, we want revenge. God, would you right now loosen that grip in our hands? God, would you help us to take the first step, not to know everything that needs to happen next, but to take one step, just one step closer to you and accept that, God, what you desire from us, what you desire for us is to forgive. And God, may we take that step right here, right now, to let your spirit move in us and change us and transform us. Holy Spirit, come and speak to our hearts in Jesus' name.